0: Be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific.
1: like oh this is really simple this is really fun this is really cool and it's the same it's the same with bitcoin i mean bitcoin seems really complicated from the outside but it's not it's 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 really simple and the and the um the properties of bitcoin are are really simple to understand, but it just seems complicated um, because it's, you know, like Tomer likes to say, it's like driving a car. The first time you get in a car, it's really complicated. There's a lot of things that you're not aware of that you're trying to pay attention to all at once. But once you start to do it, it becomes much simpler. And gee, in a, in, in a, few, in a few short months, you too can be on autopilot in a car. It's the same with Bitcoin. Eventually, you just get on autopilot.
0: Just gotta take that first step. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Get out of your fear. Do, do stuff. Good morning, Tomer. Good morning, Aunt Shane. Hey guys,
2: Skinner. Morning, Good morning, everybody. Morning, guys. Welcome back, Alex.
0: Thanks, man. I missed you guys. Just a little.
3: We missed you too.
1: It's very sweet. Tom. Just a little. But just a little.
4: <laughs>
0: okay. So, all right. I want to tell you guys about my trip. Uh, it was a working trip. Like the people that were in here telling you guys that I was on vacation, that was not correct. I was working. I will tell you that Bitcoiners are infiltrating. All levels of society. So, where did I go? The location will remain a secret. However, I will tell you that earlier this year, I was introduced to an OG Bitcoiner through one of my, it's a Swan private client, very wealthy guy. I should say, extremely wealthy guy, stupid wealthy, owns businesses in multiple industries. <clears throat> whoa, 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 whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa! Can you please be more explicit about stupid wealthy? I'd like to understand that term.
5: <sighs> well, I can take a private jet if he wants. I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, that kind of stupid wealthy. Uh, by the way, Tone knows this guy. I'm not going to dox him, but Tone, you know this dude. Awesome. His name's His name's Mark. He lives in Vegas. All I will say is Rhino, and I know you know, probably know exactly who I'm talking about. And We're not going to say anything more about who this dude is. You know who I'm talking about, Don?
5: It's a little early in the morning, but I'm sure by the end of this, Spaces, I will figure it out. Right. Will, he took you to dinner. Not because you're going to dox more. It's because I'm just going to go through everyone I know in Vegas in my head, and I'll eventually figure it out.
0: <laughs> All right. So anyway... The dude invites me to come hang out with him in Idaho at, like, a rich people's playground. By rich people, I mean, okay, so there's a private club. I'm going to say the location, but private club. And the kind of people that are there, like, founder of Micron, the heir to the Albertsons' fortune, on and on and on and on and on. This one dude, OG Bitcoiner, like he's a member of this club. He's infiltrated (laughs) the club. He's the only, in my opinion, probably true Bitcoiner there, but the numbers are growing. He's gotten several other members that are there to buy some Bitcoin. I wouldn't call these guys Bitcoiners. They're just looking at it as an investment right now. But the process has started. And I will tell you that out of about 100 people-ish that I ran into, all these guys are the same kind of approximate level of wealth or, you know, they're in that area. Um, We're so freaking early, guys. We're so early. They don't know anything about it. They don't understand it. They have no idea what's happening right under their noses. And this is going to be glorious, people. I am so fired up about the whole thing. I can't even, I can't even explain it. It's awesome.
1: When you, say, when you say they look at it as an investment, do they look at it as like a, a financial instrument or as insurance against uh, financial? Not even
0: that. No, it's just, it's just another play. To these guys, they have, they have their hands and their fingers in so many different things. To them, it's just one more thing. And I'll tell you something. This is what I learned. This is fucking fantastic. These are extremely competitive people. Extremely competitive. They give each other shit about, obviously, what they're doing on the golf course, who sucked, who didn't suck. They give each other shit about how many lots in the golf course they own. Like, one guy will have X number of lots, the other guy will have to say something about he owns more. They give each other shit about who owns the most expensive fucking ski boat, Wake boat on the lake, like this one particular dude who is a client went out on his wake boat. It's like a Lamborghini on the water. It's like th- these things are so fucking ridiculous, and they give each other shit about that.
1: About everything, give each other
0: I will shit about the corn. This is ah, see, Skinner gets it. This is where it's going to go, right? This one particular dude. He started buying at around 40 grand Bitcoin. I mean, he's, he's down quite a bit from his cost, original cost basis. So he's not talking to anybody about it because it's a loser in his portfolio. When this thing goes to 80, I promise you he's going to talk about it. And then what's going to
5: happen? Hey, hey Alex. Alex, real quick. This is where Bitcoin, I think, is going to change their mentality. When they realize that the secret is not telling people how many Bitcoin you have. Their entire view of upping each other with shit that other people see will change. And instead of, you know, it's gonna it, it's actually gonna flip. Because right now they're all upping each other because all the wealth they have is publicly known. So they wanna make everybody else known. When they realize that the real secret is gonna be not telling people how much Bitcoin they have, their their view of wealth is gonna completely flip.
0: I don't know, I don't know, man. What I what I, I think I is is that they're than gonna than
3: my ski boat since I've become a serious bitcoiner. My wake boat,
0: sorry. Well, eventually, right? So you you Tomer, you, you're I didn't know you were in that club. But
3: <laughs> I'm not in that th- club, but I do own a wake boat.
0: Okay, so I think well, I, I think they're gonna it. I think they're gonna they're gonna be very competitive. I I think the the FOMO when this thing starts really kicking in, you know, eighty grand, hundred grand, etc., is gonna be incredible and it hasn't even started guys and these are people who put it i'll put it to you like this one guy was like you know and this guy was a trader he was a former trader he goes you know what would be a great play you buy 500 million dollars worth of mstr while it's cheap right now and then you buy 10 billion dollars worth of bitcoin like these are the way these guys think like I don't know. I'm just really excited about it. I learned a lot. But this this is what what
3: Michael Saylor actually says, right? He says like, when the, and he's not the only one who says it, I guess, but when the institutions and the big players move in all this stuff that we're talking about, we're having fun stacking $1,183, $1,184. Yeah. they're going to come in like $500 million, $10 billion. It's like, you know, the, the words sound the same thousand million billion, but they're dealing in orders of magnitude that are a thousand to two a million times the size of what we I want to be clear about which club I'm in. I am in. I'm in the we club can stack.
0: Yeah, it's it's going to, you know, like <laughs> we're dropping like, you know, Peter's like, yeah, I've got I've got this this uh this block on the stack chain, that block on the stack chain. Like when these guys are coming in and doing that kind of stuff, like, like it's, it's just, I feel like it's going to get really crazy. I'm really looking forward to it. It's very exciting.
3: I don't know if you cut out for
0: others there. You cut out for me, Alex. All right. How am I now? Can you hear me?
3: Yeah, I hear you. I don't know if it might've just been me.
1: You know what's awesome about the social consensus of the stack chain, Alex, is that if someone comes in and buys the entire the entire stack and then to, to make their own chain, the social consensus can say, Yeah, screw you, we're staying on this other chain. It's just it's just awesome. The blocks do make it into the chain eventually though. Like even if that you orphan a big block. They'll come back and say, oh, I'll just put my, I'll put, I'll put these blocks that someone else had after me.
0: All right. What did I miss? What was exciting that happened since I was last here? Tell me some stories, guys.
1: Jacob had to take care of a uh, a troller and it was funny because he was actually, he was dealing with multiple things. We were having technical difficulties. Uh, We, there was a very um, um, upset individual up on stage who was complaining about stuff. And it was funny because it turned out that I believe his entire rant was missed because nobody could hear us because of the technical difficulties.
0: But Jacob Jacob handled handled it With aplomb. Nice, came out swinging like a gladiator. Proud of you, man. Well done. Anything else? We got a bunch of news items to talk about. Go ahead, Tober. Happened?
3: No, I'm um, just trying to re- review the news of the last few days. I mean. I think that the most heated topic, which is still um, pretty heated, was um, the U.S. government taking moving to sanction against this Ethereum service called um, Tornado Cash and even having an international arrest of a developer of that protocol. And uh, the consequences and discussion that it's had rippling through the DeFi space and I think most notably in Ethereum, as as they are moving towards this merge, which is now being um, highly criticized as potentially severely uh, centralizing to the point of being easily capturable by the U.S. government. So that that I, I think that's been like the hot topic of the can last. I, uh, can four or I five ask days. Few,
5: Can I ask a few questions on that? Like I have not because I was in the middle of my financial summit. So when this went down. So I haven't really paid much attention to it. The developer that they arrested, was it like a Kim.com situation? Never had a U.S. passport, never had a U.S. visa, never stopped foot on U.S. soil, complete foreigner? Or was it an American?
3: Don't know. Uh, suspect, uh, so this is speaking from ignorance, suspect not an American, but don't know
6: this right. is
1: also this has also created some conversation around uh, what's going to happen when when and if and probably more like a when uh, you know the idea of Bitcoin gets to the Supreme Court of the United States
5: well the the sale of a flashlight on the internet made it to the Supreme Court as well like that um, that was the the, the the very first e-commerce transaction over the internet also made it to the Supreme Court um, <laughs> so but um, uh, that that will we'll see what that brings. Like, you know, you can't stop technology. Like, the Supreme Court was not going to stop the sale of a flashlight over the internet. Like, they, they tried, but they failed. And, uh, so I'm not too worried about that. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, this, this is super curious. There has to be more to the story because it seems a little nuts. And, uh, so was it just a straight up mixing service? You send in Ethereum and then you get different Ethereum out the same way we've had these things in Bitcoin for like five years. Well, yes. And By no. the way, the guy was Dutch okay. for whatever yeah. it means. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, so it, all, you know, the, de- the devil is in the details or it's all it's all in the nuance, right? So people hear blockchain. What's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? And then you get into the details and you see how different these things are and you end up with the same issue. On t- Tornado Cash, which is like like many services on Ethereum, it's got this front end and this back end, and people connect to it th- in different ways, uh, usually using a hosted wallet or you know a, a service that has a server as opposed to being truly peer to peer, being truly decentralized. And so, um, the U.S. government was able to sanction Tornado Cash and. I'm not the super expert here, so I may misspeak a little bit, not out of intention to mischaracterize anything. I'm just not super expert on some of these things. But what ended up happening was, as is the case in so many of these Ethereum services, the front end got shut down because it was running on Amazon and Amazon and the the company hosting it complied and so there was a lot of the the service became unavailable except for people who were I guess running their own node or had some access to direct access to the back end not through these other services and I I just like I want to add like two other points that I'm aware of as a result of just sanctioning these addresses on this one service um, a lot of other DeFi services announced their compliance and shut down these addresses as well. So there was mass censorship that now became not compl- compelled but voluntary because people didn't want to ruffle the feathers. And there's also the difference in terms of how Ethereum stores ETH and, and other tokens, which is a, this account model as opposed to non unspent transaction model, which means if somebody sends you ETH to, your, to an address that they know is yours, there's no separating the tainted ETH from the pristine ETH. Um, It gets combined into an account total, um, which is different than how Bitcoin looks. You you could choose never to spend the tainted Bitcoin that you receive if someone sends you Bitcoin. And so then someone who had access to the back end of this began sending Ethereum from Tornado Cash to lots of well-known addresses, and this creates confusion. And and, and it shows... uh, it shows a number of things about the compliance and capturability of the DeFi space, which which as many have criticized is decentralized in name only. And and you see that as soon as the government issues an edict even on one service, all these other services come to comply. And 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 the exchanges who are like Coinbase said, We don't think this is a good idea, but we will of course comply with with whatever the law is. So whether they think it's a good idea or not. There's there's issues on DeFi and, and a lot of this is unraveling and, and this had this parallel issue, which is as Ethereum moves towards a proof of stake system, there's been a, another problem revealed, which is most of the stake is delegated into the, a handful of suppliers. So like the top four staking pools, which again are on nuance are They're different from mining. Like in Bitcoin, a mining pool is I have a miner. And I decide I want to participate in Pool A, so I point it at Pool A. And if they do something I don't like, I just point it to Pool B. I can change it in one second. With Ethereum delegated staking, is you send your Ethereum to the delegated staker, they put it in the staking contract. And there are logical reasons to do this, because you then don't have to have the hardware to maintain the staking service, because it's not proof of work. And there's no way to withdraw the staked coins from the contract at all, let alone to have them sent back to you or to join another pool. And so what we have now is something like 67 or 68% of all the staked ETH that's staked uh, is in just 11 providers, all of whom are American nationals, uh, like American national corporations that will will abide by any instructions by the U.S. government. Uh, And that's more than enough to... Determine which chain is which version of the chain is real, and so there's warnings saying like, "Be careful, you're you're headed into a trap if you go this way." But the date has been set, and uh, there's been a lot of history. So I think those are the the big overarching things that are still spinning up um, in the conversation around this uh, this shift. I've I've got more to add, but I feel like Homer. Don't you
1: think that the don't you think that the that the arrest of the developer who was just exercising free speech is also a a huge, a huge thing. And and also uh, tone, just to put it a little more in perspective, the, the US government came in and did this because they said that there was um, North Korean um, assets involved with this. And so that's why this, this thing was tainted because the North Koreans were, were washing stuff. So now everybody has tainted North Korean assets.
5: Oh, That's actually, uh, that's probably the coolest thing about this story uh, that I've heard so far. Uh, But yeah, so uh, this is what happened. So Ethereum personnel and their developers pissed off the US government by going out to Korea and uh, teaching them about crypto. So that's probably, they already were on the shit list. Uh, for the moment they can do something. I think the fact that they're using Amazon web services had a lot to do with it as well. Uh, If anything, they probably checked with like Amazon and they're like, well, we don't want this shit. Um, So so, so these are the kinds of things that um, Ethereum people keep thinking that the world is rainbows and unicorns and uh, there aren't any hostile actors, which is also why their proof of stake, as Tomer just explained, is dumber than I even thought it would be. And that always happens. Like People, uh, people always ask me, like, Tone, how, how are you going to call this project a scam after looking at their website for three seconds? And my answer usually is, because if I start digging, if I actually have to waste a half an hour on research, it's going to be a lot worse than what I already said about your project after the first 10 seconds of looking into it. That has been the case each and every single time. And here we are again. I always knew that the Ethereum moving to stake was going to be dumb, but I didn't realize how dumb until Tomer just explained it. So, so Tone, there's a,
3: there's, um, a guy uh, whose handle is Checkmate, and I'll, I'll dig it up when I'm not talking and share it in the nest, who who has a portfolio, 80% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum, is an engineer, is like the lead on-chain analyst for Glassnode. So really, credible engineer, um, understands both systems really well. And he put out um he put out a couple of pieces of content on this weekend that were tied to this because the tornado casting got him very worried about the f- the capturability of ethereum and he he put out a very objective presentation and said i just want to hear an explanation as to why i'm wrong that this whole thing will be ca- easily capturable after the proof of the move to proof of stake and he hasn't you know and i've I've communicated with him cuz i'd put out an article about how i thought ethereum was very centralized, and it was the most read thing I'd ever written. And I've never heard back um, any any points that said, "No, you're actually mistaken. Here's here's why. Here's the mistake in your thing." I've, I've been insulted, but mostly it's just been a very widely read piece. And I think he's coming from the same view. He's done this analysis on how many coins are in the staking pools, and and what it means, and why people will always choose staking pools that then. Allow them to trade a derivative token over staking themselves and having having to maintain an, a full node and validate a risk of getting slashed. Like it's a very complicated uh, participating in proof of stake and and this whole transition. So it's worth listening to him if you want to catch up on the fundamental and objective issues that are behind here. But I, I think you're right. Look, there's all these political issues and and the thing has become politicized and controlled by. All these political machinations. It's not this objective, unstoppable, purely mathematical, physics based right. system anymore.
5: And this is definitely the wrong group to ask Ethereum questions. But um, what's going to happen with the miners, right? Like, again, for five years now, I've been saying that Ethereum will legitimately fork between proof of stake and proof of work. Those miners are not going to stop making money. Uh, the miners are going to try to convince all those projects to stay on the mining side of the fork which will actually be a decentralized ethereum like the ethereum has a chance to finally be decentralized when vitalik and the ethereum foundation go off and do their socialist stake uh the capitalist proof of work mined ethereum will be like an actual decentralized competitor to bitcoin i personally think it will still fail uh, for two reasons. One, the the socialist Ethereum chain will do everything they can to destroy the proof of work Ethereum chain. Uh, but if the proof of work Ethereum chain, which is decentralized, uh, which will be decentralized, but in early stages of decentralization, you are very, very vulnerable to coordinated centralized attacks, just like Bitcoin probably could have been destroyed in 2010 but nobody cared to do so. Uh, so they may it's not gone. be able to survive. That's one reason. And the other reason is no one actually gives a shit about a decentralized Ethereum. So even if the decentralized proof-of-work Ethereum does survive the initial coordinated attack against it, it will die out over time because everyone still wants the Ethereum Foundation to call and fix their problems. So either way, the work side of Ethereum is doomed, but I think that is the like, the better like for all those shit coins that have built on top of Ethereum, you don't want to go to proof of stake. You want to stay in a decentralized version and try to keep that alive. But I still think it'll fail.
3: Yeah. So the, so then another layer of import, very important, but quite easy to understand nuance comes in. Many of these coins, uh, many of these DeFi tokens and stuff, all are deeply integrated with stable coins that run on Ethereum, right? There are derivatives of this, they're, they use collateral from that. And these stable coins are meant to be one-to-one backed by dollars in an account somewhere. So now if there's a fork, USDC, for example, has to make some kind of decision. It's like, well which fork do I support with 100 cents on the dollar and which one do I abandon with the zero cents on the dollar? Or do I say each one is worth 50 cents on the dollar? It's complete chaos if the thing forks into two. And so there have been, and again, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think that there have been like some futures markets open to demonstrate and every and it's been overwhelmingly supportive of the proof of stake chain, as you point out in your second point, that people just want to go in the direction that the ethereum foundation is going in and i think it is um it's it's this whole well i, I kind of want to save. Uh, there's a point i, I want i want to make but i'm going to save it for when pete rizzo is here and we're talking about maximalism because it comes down to you know i in me making these points i get accused of concern trolling like that which is to say i'm pretending that i care about something and i'm worried about it but one there's no real cause for concern and uh and you know, and I'm just doing it because I only care about Bitcoin and I'm trying to create FUD and scare people away from Ethereum. And I, I'll, I'll go ahead and make the analogy. I'll just make it again later as well. It, I feel like it's, you know, we're on the Titanic saying we're going full speed ahead into an iceberg. Slow down. And people are saying, you're just concerned trolling. You're, you know, you're a, you're a <laughs> non-Titanic not an iceberg. maximalist.
0: Tomer, Jesus.
3: Yeah, but you're, like you're a non-Titanic maximalist and we're about to set a, a world speed record. We move fast and break things. Don't worry. We can it whether there's an iceberg ahead or not, we can hit it and and everything'll be fine because this is the Titanic and we've got the great leader as our captain. Right.
5: Right. Tom, and this is exactly why people like Corey Klipstein get a lot of shit because there was enough people there that feel that they would have gotten out of Celsius. You know, right at the top, if Corey didn't like make it like collapse faster, right? Like, there's plenty of those people too. Like, for every person that Corey saved out of Celsius, there's a person that says, I was going to be out the day, like, I was going to go, I was going to leave it tomorrow, but instead it imploded.
0: That's so nonsense. I mean, that entire that entire thing. Like, oh, it's all Corey's fault. Give me a fucking break. Mashinsky, Mashinsky was like telling the traders to do all kinds of stupid shit right before it blew up. We were just talking about it in the team chat earlier, in the back channel. Like,
5: I, uh, I mean, so I I, stupid. I I agree. I agree. But with these altcoins, right? Like, again, this is the this is the problem that the Bitcoin ecosystem faces is because people in Bitcoin are just way more. On average, everything's a bell curve. On average, people in Bitcoin are way more ethical and way more honest. So we treat some of the most theoretical problems with Bitcoin as potential uh, critical flaws. Meanwhile, in any shitcoin, from Ethereum on down, they treat realistic, serious problems as theoretical impossibilities. And this is probably one of my biggest frustrations with the crypto space.
0: I think, I think the best analogy was the one that Tomer just gave. You've got a bunch of dudes up on the Titanic that are like, this ship is unsinkable. Are you fucking kidding me? This is the newest, smartest, most revolutionary technological advantaged thing that was ever created. <laughs> it's immune to icebergs. We don't need to worry about that shit. Yeah,
3: I, I think that, and there's also a lot of this acquiescence to, like Bitcoiners don't trust we verify, right? Like we're not... I hope that people aren't just saying, "Oh, Tomer said," and and taking it as the given as the given truth. There's like Tomer said, so let's see if he's right. Let's see if he's wrong. Let's correct him if he's wrong. Let's call him out if he's lying. And uh, and alternatively, on Ethereum, what we see is Vitalik is so smart, he must be right if he says that proof of stake is better than proof of work. He must be right if this solution that they've worked on since 2014 is finally coming eight years later and and it, brandon quit put out a thread yesterday saying i don't i saying this is what brandon's saying i don't think vitalik actually understands proof of work and he cites a number of statements that vitalik's made over the years that are easily falsifiable for people who choose to verify uh these statements and so maybe we can also throw that up in the nest but it, it's it's, t- it's tough. Like, why should we even care, I guess? And, and for me, it's not, that I'm, it's not that I'm actually concerned about Ethereum. Right? I think that there's enough things that ultimately are going to lead to it going south. But it's an opportunity for people who are interested and invested in it and questioning about it, as, as this um, uh, Checkmate guy is, to, to be able to see something that's simpler to see and, and as, as Tone was saying, is a very practical thing. Like, I don't care what you're thinking, any theory that's not good in practice is not a good theory. And, and you know, like Vitalik said, it, you know, it's un- inconceivable, I don't, I don't know that that's a word that he used, it's improbable or unlikely that uh, staking pools will emerge. And yet, not only have they emerged, they've become the overwhelming majority of the staked ETH. So there was something about his theory it doesn't work in practice. And, and this is a fundamental, this is the fundamental flaw because if everybody delegates their stake by sending their coins and surrendering the custody of their coins, not your keys, not your coins. So, so not, the coins are no longer theirs. Their coins are now a promise from a corporation to give them their coins whenever the Ethereum Foundation releases a client that allows you to unstake your coins. This And now the overwhelming majority of coins are held that that are in the staking contract are held in these entities. This was a huge oversight. It was one that should have been seen, but it just goes to show he's not as smart as he thinks he is. And despite the fact that he was mistaken about this, the ship is going full throttle towards the iceberg. Right? It's like there were, there will not be an iceberg. It's like, okay, well now there is an iceberg. Full speed full steam ahead. And well, that well, well,
5: that's how do, how do you explain less like like Ethereum's rising faster? in price than bitcoin i'm looking at the ethereum bitcoin chart from a ta perspective and it looks bullish as hell to actually keep appreciating versus bitcoin i cannot explain this like are people that stupid or like i don't or think is this mean? is well known
3: I, I i imagine that many of the people in the audience here are like what are they talking about right? Uh, this is all complex and confusing. And and the mainstream narrative is Ethereum is about to complete the merged to proof of stake, which is going to make it more environmentally friendly than Bitcoin. And it's going to flip in Bitcoin, right? Like this is, this is the narrative that's been out there. So what we're talking about is all these technical details of like that ship is headed straight for an iceberg, which is going to sink it. And people are like, I hear it's going to cross the Atlantic faster than anybody else. And so like, because it hasn't hit the iceberg yet although it's hit smaller like the tornado cash thing was a big warning and this other discussion it's still you know it's one guy on twitter saying something um and and so i i think that this is where the market is eventually efficient but it's usually underinformed, especially on
1: deep technological um realities as they emerge I think it goes back to it goes back to what Alex was talking about with the uh, individuals he was he was uh, consorting with uh, over the last weekend, and they don't understand it. They just invest in it.
0: Okay, hey, you have to be yeah, and and the, and the, and the talking points on. the talking points matter because they don't really get what's going on under the hood. You know, tone is like, oh, what is happening with this thing? It is performing better. That's all, really.
7: I think that they're seeing. Good morning, Greg Foss. What do you think about all that, guys? Great conversation. Um, you know, I can't add, add anything on the technical side, but I just want to bring uh, you know some reality to the conversation in terms of uh, age and smartness versus experience. Okay, uh, it's impossible that Victalik is as smart as everyone thinks he is because he's just too young. All right, it, it's impossible he has the experience to manage through things that he hasn't lived long enough to get the uh, chops to be able to manage through these types of uh, challenges. Okay, so you can be brilliant and still uh, not understand how the world works. And, you know, there's that expression, I, I, I don't want to draw political uh, uh, sides, but I'm sure everyone's heard that expression that if you're not liberal when you are young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain. And I don't know whether, you know, it applies here, but the reality is, you know, there's certain human uh, characteristics that lend yourself to being able to get on a stage like Vitalik does and play a, uh, you know, brilliant uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, woke individual that uh, everyone's gonna love and and to to, res- to bring that into some trading applications uh you know tone listen there is so much stupid money in the world and uh you know they all they have to do is read that this thing is going to go to proof of stake and oh my god you listen to rug paul and it's it's going to be great and you listen to kevin o'leary and he's like it's my biggest position but i still have concerns And then you realize that neither of those guys are that smart either, right? Like they're sucking and blowing at the same time. So stupid money, uh, charts are good for following stupid money. There's no question. But uh, over time, I think your thesis will will, uh, bear fruit. So can I just bring one other thing up though? And I don't want to hijack the conversation. I want to bring up the fact that Canada released inflation numbers today. um, 7.6% in July, down from 8.1%. Um, it's key that people understand that even if Canada prints zero, 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 and zero to end the year, or, you know, the balance of the year. So five months of more prints, it will still end the year at a 6% annualized inflation. Okay. So zero month over month increases. This is crazy that people don't understand that inflation compounds. Okay. And we will never, ever, ever get back to a 2% inflation rate in the short term. Inflation is here for a good long time, people. The only solution, QE infinity, okay? Remember on Alex's broadcast here, when they announced QE infinity, you're gonna be like, dang, I should have researched what compounding means and understanding that you cannot escape this debt spiral, D-E-B-T spiral, when inflation is compounding at close to eight percent annually, doesn't work. Don't care about Ethereum. Care about Bitcoin as a store of value. Over and out. Thanks,
5: guys. Oh, okay, Greg. Greg, uh, don't, don't don't leave you. I got I got question. I got questions and comments for you. So uh, three things, real quick. One, the, you're about to laugh at this one. So the book. Uh, speaking of Vitalik being smart and everything, so the book that Greg Foss is basically describing, but the name is called When Genius Fails. And he'll know exactly what that book's about. Um, That was the long-term capital management disaster uh, where the smartest guys in the room started a hedge fund that was crushing everybody for about three to four years and then went to zero. Um, So... The Canadian inflation numbers, how high would those numbers be if Canada didn't ban guns and people would actually be buying those at a free market rate? (laughs) If that got factored in, you'd probably break that percent right now. And um, hey, so Canada's inflation numbers, you guys are actually pretty damn lucky because those numbers are strictly in Canadian dollars. And the Canadian dollar, by some miracle, has not devalued against the US dollar this year. It's almost at par for the year. Now, if the Canadian dollar would have done what the euro did, it would have been a total disaster up there. Um, any additional comments, Greg?
7: Wow, Tone, totally. that's uh, very astute. So the reason the Canadian dollar is maintaining its uh, its call it a peg it's it's an it's not a fixed peg, but it's a you know it's it's at about one twenty five, meaning um, uh, it stayed there. I think that's what you're referring to, right in that area for the for the whole year. It's because it's an energy currency and Canada always does well. The Canadian dollar always does well when the, when energy has a bid. Okay. So basically that's uh, I think that's an old looking back, but then to answer your question on let's, let's dive into this, uh, when genius failed analogy to begin with, uh, or to, you know, uh, that really, uh, opened my eyes. So yeah, when genius failed, had two Nobel prize winning, uh, mathematicians or economists, um, Uh, and they were doing what's called selling volatility. They were selling insurance to the street, uh, the Goldman's and the, um, all the other investment banks on wall street. Uh, and they were selling essentially vol. If you look at a chart of the VIX, which measures volatility, you'll realize that when markets get under stress, vol spikes. And if you're short because you've sold vol to the street you're getting crushed. Okay. So yeah, they sold vol over, over a period of a couple of years and uh, they were making money. And the reason they were making money tone is they were levered a hundred to one. So for their capital base, they were levering the insurance a hundred times. And here's the craziest thing. This is what blew my mind. They were basing their models on seven years of data. So when they said, we're at the 99% confidence interval that vol can't go any higher. It was 99% of a seven-year data stream. It's the point is you get m- monkeys in all sorts of chairs. Who would in their right mind base an insurance policy on seven years of data and then well, even well, more importantly, yeah.
5: Right. that's because some of the insurance they were selling was on Russia and Russia became capitalist in 1991. So they couldn't really go back further.
7: Well, it could be. I mean it was all it was really selling ball, okay They were doing things like off the run uh, treasuries and trying to play the shape of the treasury curve off the runs versus on the runs. But the key, two things to take away 100 year sorry 100 to one leverage and basing an entire business model, on seven years of data. And then who's the real fools in the room? The Goldman's and the other guys that were buying insurance from this insurance company and believing that they were hedging themselves. And what happened? Well, they had to go to the Fed and get bailed out because if they didn't bail out long-term capital, all of the banks that had bought insurance from long-term would have gone down the drain as well. So that was the first kicking the can down the road tone that opened my eyes to the Fiat Ponzi. You know, I've lived through four of them. I've mentioned it at your conference, but the four have been Latin American debt, long-term capital management, the great financial crisis, and COVID. And each time, it's kicking the can down the road, not solving the problem, and ensuring that the Fiat Ponzi will continue to accelerate, meaning the debasement of the Fiat will continue to accelerate. And it's being kicked exponentially. Oh it has to uh, that's the math uh, that is the math sir you're absolutely right it is only
0: buy math buy bitcoin buy bitcoin buy bitcoin <laughs> don't shitcoin buy
4: bitcoin
3: just a, a quick thought on this i i don't make a big deal of this but i like my degree is in finance and what i and and i my other degrees in economics and so what i what i took away from learning these things and i i learned about long term capital management there and i happened to sit on the executive committee of a board that had uh the uh, the uh, chairman of the audit committee of Enron on it during my professional career at the time that Enron blew up. And, and so what I took away from all this stuff is economists and financial analysts like to model things and they like to make assumptions about what range various external things will, uh, will trade in, you know, will, uh, what range they'll operate in in their models and they never look outside these ranges right like economists in, initially before stagflation occurred said stagflation was impossible they said the a, interest rates are a trade-off for inflation so one's going to be high the other is going to be low and then lo and behold they were wrong because they did they, they miscal they misassumed certain things the long-term capital boys they assumed that certain things would never get as volatile as they did and as soon as they did it was exactly all these mass liquidation events that That they were suffering through and so that's that for me was really the lesson it's like always look at the strange possibilities with these models these things that people say can never happen as jerome powell and janet yellen were saying we you know we we're not going to get inflation or it's going to be transitory there are circumstances that can happen that will disobey the um the accepted wisdom on these things and i think that's that's where a guy like michael saylor says all your models are broken like what happens when the issuance of bitcoin becomes negative because miners are hoarding it all, all these things change um against people's models so i i generally say like if you're going to model look at the extremes because the extremes are where people get burned and, and that's, that's so like
0: exciting thinking. to me and I'm, I'm so bullish right now i can't even contain myself i'm, I'm like
7: alex i i just wanted to sir? add one more thing sir and then i'm going to jump down but just in a shout out to Corey, okay, and and you brought it up before, and how people are blaming Corey for you know the Celsius uh, unraveling. My God, isn't that hilarious? Uh, they're blaming a guy that called out the illogic of the mathematics. It would be the equivalent of uh, you know Goldman Sachs calling out Long Term Capital Management, and and then getting blamed for the collapse of Long Term Capital Management when. You have already bought insurance from that. What Corey was doing was defending people and protecting people against going into this flawed model, okay? You know, Corey's good at math. We know that. But also, he's able to call out a model that has a high likelihood of failure. That's what Tomer's saying, okay? It's tail risk. It's all about the bell curve and participating and anticipating the tail risks that are involved. So having spent my entire life in tail risk analysis, okay, risk happens fast, people. Buy your insurance when you can because when you want to buy it, you can't. Everyone else is bidding the price up so high, you can't buy it. So buy insurance when it is cheap, the number one rule of risk management. Thanks, guys. Yep,
0: okay, so two quick things, uh, two quick things. Hang on, hang on. Number one. Number one, Greg, stop apologizing. Stop saying you need to step down because you don't. You're, you've been around this crew for a bit now. I enjoy when you come in and hang out. I think you should continue to do it. You've got 90 more episodes to go before you get into the back channel. So keep plugging. Number two, thanks for what you said about Corey. I will add that like one other thing that's kind of a soft skill that Corey has, a lot of people don't realize. He's very good with the analytical part, just like you said but he has a very powerful bullshit detector. He can look at human behavior and he just, I don't know how he does this, but his ability to see the signal in uh, through, uh, through the bullshit is pretty fantastic. And I'm not like saying this because I work for the man or because like whatever, it's just, it's very rare to run across people that are like that. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Let's, let's hit some announcements really quick. We haven't done that yet. And then we'll keep rolling. There's lots of cool stuff. To talk about still yet today, you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you have never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin. We do it every single day. Monday through Friday, we start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours. A preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin randomly. We have like really great thinkers drop in here and just kind of hang out and talk about what's going on. If you can't make the live show, because we do this on Twitter Spaces, you can catch it as a podcast. It's up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Something you're not going to want to miss, Swan Signal Live this week. um, Let's see. It's going to be Wednesday. Yep. Wednesday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, It's going to be with Lynn Alden and Pablo. Pablo. And uh, they're going to be talking about lightning. It's going to be fantastic. You can catch it on uh, the Swan YouTube channel. Um, and basically, the uh, the first hour, they're going to be doing it um, live on the YouTube channel. They're going to do another hour uh, in spaces where we're going to do Q&A. So if you want to ask some live questions, you can. What else we got going on? Oh, the Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up in November, November 10th and 11th. Um, I hope to see you there. I'm going, I know all of Swan is going, and would really be great to see our fellow Bitcoiners there and to, uh, hang out with you guys, talk to you guys live, get to know you all better. Uh, I hope you come. You can use promo code cafe, all caps for, I think now it's dropped to 10% off. Am Am I right about that? Jacob, does anybody know? Um, Anyway, you can use promo code CAFE for a discount. You can also jump in the Telegram group if you want to know about all the kind of side parties and events and all the things that are going on. You can shoot me a DM if you want to know more about that. Finally, I work with Swan. Uh, If you didn't know, Swan Bitcoin is an on-ramp. I don't like to call it an exchange. Why? Because exchanges deal in lots of other shit coins and Swan doesn't. Swan is a Bitcoin-only company. You can convert garbage fiat into Bitcoin and you know what's cool? We'll help you. We'll talk to you. We'll teach you. We'll hold your hand the whole way. If you want to know about anything, you know what? We actually like pick up a phone and we'll talk to you live if necessary. Support, you know, we've got great great reviews about our support team. They're always um, responsive and real quick to get to your stuff. Uh, it's international. We can take clients from all over the world. Um, if you have a business, you want to put Bitcoin on your business balance sheet, we can do that too. So, Enough about Swan. other stuff is going on? Oh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, guys. Both Tone and Foss. (laughs) Here's a headline today. Markets are signaling an easing cycle has already started, with the Fed now behind the curve on inflation... (laughs) <laughs> and this guys uh, he's a chief Wall Street strategist. Who the hell does he work for? He works for a Luth- Luthold Group. He said, investors should worry less about what the will do- Fed will do because it's now behind the curve on the inflation slowdown. Says Jim Paulson, markets are signaling the easing cycle has already started. And this one last guy is like, I don't really care what the Fed is doing because the Fed isn't driving the ship. That's different. You guys have any thoughts?
7: Well, I'll uh, I'll jump in and then I do have to leave at 11, uh, guys, so thanks so much. But look, um, okay, Jim Paulson, first of all, uh, yeah, he's an equity equity guy, so try not to listen to an equity guy with respect to credit markets and U.S. Treasury uh, yields and whatnot. Um, They get the signal wrong over half the time. Uh, and uh, now he has been in the markets a long time, so I'm not going to talk that negatively about Jim Paulson, except to say, again, remember what side of the uh, trading floor he works on. He works where the children work, okay, over in the equity side. The bond side is where the adults work. That's where you got to look for uh, your signal, okay? Um, So, you know, I've I've said, uh, come out and said, uh, a number of times that I believe the Fed is in the process of pivoting uh, and I have to define what a pivot is in my mind it's that 4.5 percent Fed funds overnight is now off the table in the Fed fight in the Fed's uh, inflation fighting uh, toolkit okay and the markets are sort of confirming that now and they can change certainly but it's pure again getting back to the pure mathematics of it people the Fed will bankrupt itself quick more quickly at four and a half percent interest costs. at that rate, the Fed will be spending more, or the U.S government will be spending more on interest expense than they spend on military expenditures. I need you people to understand the magnitude of the interest expense on $30 trillion of outstanding debt, and not to mention the other $170 trillion of unfunded obligations, but even using the $30 trillion of outstanding debt, a 3% interest coupon, average interest coupon on that, a is $1 trillion a year. The U.S. military budget is less than a trillion dollars a year. Okay. People don't understand the magnitude. We sort of get our eyes glaze over once we start. So,
5: so is the US tax revenue, I think. I think that's also just under a trillion a year.
7: The US tax revenue tone is about four point, uh, four trillion. Okay. Really? In, that's in, high yeah, now? In, Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Entitlements, entitlements, and things that are to keep the government running are about 3.4 trillion. Okay. And Oh, sorry. 2.6 trillion. Yeah. Add the, uh, military spending onto that. That's 3.4 trillion. You add another trillion dollars of interest expense and you can see how the debt spiral works because your interest expense is greater than your tax revenue or pushes it above your total tax revenue so that your, your debt is, is growing just organically due to the, uh, the interest coupon. Now here's the kicker people. The government revenues were massively impacted by capital gains. And since this year has had a horrible capital loss, there will not be capital gains in the tax revenues. So the math is getting really bad. And this is with interest expense at, you know, historical lows. Try putting it up to where Volcker started fighting inflation, you know, 8, 9, 10%. And the debt spiral, that huge sucking sound, that's Canada getting pulled down the U.S. toilet, okay? And that's too bad, but that's the way the world the world works. So I'll, I'll be around for another couple of minutes, but please study math. It's so simple when you look at revenues versus expenses, entitlements, military spending, and interest expense, and then you'll realize as Luke Gorman points out, Luke says, debt or financial repression is the only solution. Get on the Bitcoin bandwagon.
5: Yeah, everyone Everyone always talks about the U.S. you know uh, national debt, but that is like 20% of the U.S. unfunded liabilities, which is the real concern because no one, no country is going to come here to collect on foreign debt. Like we have too many weapons. We're too geographically perfectly located. No one's invading us for because we owe them money. But uh, what, the $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities, that's the money we the U.S. government owes to its own citizens that are armed to the teeth. That's the real problem.
1: It's, one, it's, it's, it's 170. It's 170.
7: Foss, it's 170.
1: The, yes, go ahead. Didn't the math start going wrong when we started throwing around the term trillions instead of billions?
7: Yeah, probably. Good point. Look, back in the um, back in the Great Financial Crisis in two thousand and eight, TARP was nine hundred billion. So you're right, less than a trillion. And then in the COVID response was measured in trillions, two point three trillion. Have you guys?
0: Right? Have you guys? Does, has it occurred to you, or have you thought about it in this way? It, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this just not the natural effect of compounding over time? Like eventually, it just goes straight up on a graph.
7: You're right, Alex, unless t- when total debt to GDP is under 60 percent, so total government debt to GDP is under 60 percent, it's sustainable. That's what it was when Volcker was fighting inflation. Right now, it is not sustainable with total government debt. And this is only funded debt. It doesn't include the $170 trillion of unfunded debt that uh, Tone pointed out at 122% of total government debt to GDP, it is not sustainable. And that is the compounding effect. So I got to jump down guys. I'll be here for another one minute or so, but uh, thanks for listening. Here's your math 101 lesson buy Bitcoin. I love you.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Love it when you pop in here, man. Obviously you're welcome anytime. Did you guys hear that Mark Cuban is getting sued? Um, so there is a new class action lawsuit that he's getting hit with for for promoting Voyager Digital's crypto products.
2: Yeah, they, they promoted Voyager big time, right? They did a partnership with them and had a big hoopla oh, and you know, some of the games. But anyway, I did, yeah, I read about that a
1: little bit.
0: It's crazy. It's just another sign. System's getting cleaned out here. Um, Another thing, and this again goes under the category of we are over the target, sir. UN agency urges authorities to curb cryptocurrency expansion in developing countries. United Nations trade body has recommended a set of policy actions to curb the expansion of cryptocurrencies in developing nations. Because they think that if it becomes widespread means of payment, it could jeopardize the monetary sovereign of countries. No kidding. Apex Predator, Apex Predator can't be stopped. Resistance is futile. When the real money starts coming into this space, I can't can't stop thinking about this, man. This thing is going to get so off the hook crazy. Like You guys have seen nothing yet. Nothing. 70 grand for a Bitcoin?
8: What's up, guys? Can you hear me?
0: Good morning, Rizzo. How are you doing, man?
8: Good. I hope I didn't miss anything. I just uh, got the timing right. (laughs)
0: Your timing is outstanding. We do this for two hours every day. So the first hour, we're just talking about stuff, basically. Whatever's going on in the world, what's going on in the market, what's affecting Bitcoin, why Bitcoin is the future.
8: Uh, Stuff is cool. You know, there's a lot of
1: it out there.
0: Yes, sir. So really excited that you came today. Uh, Rizzo is an editor or the editor at Bitcoin Magazine uh and at kraken uh contributor also at forbes he's done some amazing articles um we're gonna explore bitcoin maximalism and i know rizzo you know uh tomer up here
8: what's up tomer good to see you hey man glad to have you here
3: important conversation
8: definitely yeah and i appreciate it a big fan of your work as you know and uh yeah happy to chat so
0: All right. Well, um, where would you guys like to start? I mean, I'd, I'd love to just sit here and learn from both of you.
3: Well, I, maybe I can set the stage a little bit and turn it over to Pete for right after that. I wanted to have Pete on this show uh, because he wrote this incredible article about what maximalism means. And, and it wasn't, I think he did some exceptional thinking about the topic and it's new knowledge. And that's what I really wanted to have us, uh, appreciate and understand, there, there are certain words that mean different things. Uh, sometimes they mean their own opposite, like the word sanction. You can sanction something which means to permit it, or you can sanction something which means to forbid it. Um, and so it, it, the English language is interesting. Maximalism is this new word that God invented as an insult um, and not terribly well defined, right? It was just thrown out there. And then a group of people took on the word and accepted it also without a great amount of definition but there's something there right why and there's a, there's almost like this war over this word um and what it means and it may mean, it may end up meaning two things but i think pete has done some incredible research around why having a what what this philosophy is to people who self-identify as it and what it actually means because i think many people might say i'm a maximalist and until they hear pete Like and if they're asked, Well, what does that mean? They might not be able to articulate it well. But once they hear what Pete has to say, I think many will say, Yes. He nailed it. So I want to give Pete a real opportunity to discuss it. There's been a couple of discussions of his article. Uh, there, was, there was another Twitter Spaces, and he also did an interview with Peter McCormick. But I, I almost didn't feel like he he managed to get it out in speech as well as he um, deserved to. So I wanted to present it uh, to this audience, and then to ha- for people to have an opportunity, myself included, to dialogue on this def- on this definition and this philosophy and why it makes sense at the end of the day. So just kind of with that, maybe I, I, unless Alex, you have something else to frame it with, I would want to turn it over to Pete to define and and explain his research and how he came to this definition and why he thinks it makes sense.
8: Yeah, sure. I'd I'd be happy to just jump off that. So yeah, I agree. I think in some of the forums, you know, there was, there was some debate that wasn't super helpful, but I guess, you know, some of the, some of those arguments is essentially you know, I don't don't think the word Bitcoiner is like too useful of a description because essentially what you're saying when you say that you're a Bitcoiner is you're trying to say that like just by owning Bitcoin alone, you sort of subscribe or like meet some set of values, which is like, I don't, you know, and I don't really think that makes a ton of sense. Right. So you can, you can kind of see in your own life that you, you know, you probably own things and you don't really have a relationship to those things. Right. That ownership maybe doesn't, um, you know, uh, come with any sort of responsibility uh, to it, right? Whereas I think Bitcoin maximalism, like, is something else, right? It's a way to kind of go beyond mere ownership of the thing and, and actually kind of put this system of values uh, around it, right? So that's why, you know, I kind of did some research, like, I'm looking in the article, you know, Bitcoin maximalism, like, what is an ism? Uh, you know, isms are just systems of beliefs, right? Ists are people who follow, uh, those beliefs. And therefore, you know, then the question is sort of like, okay, well, why does Bitcoin have an ism? Right? Why is it necessary? Or what does that purpose serve? Right? And I think, um, you know, as you alluded to, Bitcoin maximalism does have a weird history, right? It is a term that was originally derogatory, but I would argue has, has really been reclaimed, uh, because there isn't really a better way to describe uh, the fact that, you know, People who are within Bitcoin who want to maximally extend Bitcoin to increase its utility for the world—you know—they need some way to express that, uh, and Bitcoin maximalism is, for better or for worse, the best word, right? It just—it just encapsulates what you would want to express in—in uh, in the verbiage. Uh, so, you know, I essentially then sort of went and and tried to kind of write down, okay, like, well, if Bitcoin maximalism, maximalism is an ism, you know, if it is this kind of school of thought, like, what. What really are the different points that comprise it? And, you know, I I really laid down kind of a three-point definition. I'm I'm actually in the process of, like, trying to expand it a bit right now. Um, But I think a lot of people get caught up on on saying that they're not a Bitcoin maximalist. I think even people who you (laughs) might consider Bitcoin maximalists will say they're not Bitcoin maximalists. And then often really what they're doing is they're, you know, they have some reason that they're uninterested in other cryptocurrencies. Maybe they think they're wrong. They're like, they think they're stupid. They think they're immoral or uninteresting. And they get really, like, hung up, um, I think, on the specific, like, reasons that they're uninterested in cryptocurrencies. Um, And what I try to do is, I think, just sidestep that. I don't really think that's important. Like, ultimately, at the end of the day, whether you hate other cryptocurrencies with a passion and you spend, you know, your time on, on, on Twitter trying to kind of, you know make people aware of the trade-offs for those things, or you just carry on your day not thinking much about them, like the end product of you doing that is just your indifference to the thing, right? Like there's no, uh, you could argue that maybe there's there's a difference of sentiments, like maybe you care more or less about it, but if you ultimately just don't care about the thing, then I would say you're united in that belief, right? So, you know, again, I put down like a three-pronged definition, which is, you know, one, that Bitcoin was a computer science invention. Uh, It is a working non-state monetary system. It's the first working non-state monetary system. Uh, And that all crypto assets compete with Bitcoin by virtue of their existence, uh, and that none offer long-term advantages without trade-offs, right? So I think that gets to a pretty good approximation of what why people would want to subscribe to Bitcoin maximalism, right? They sort of recognize Bitcoin as an invention and they recognize it as an achievement and they recognize a certain definition of that achievement. Um, and then I think uh, another part of that is that Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin maximalists, they have to believe that Bitcoin is only limited by their own future ingenuity. Right. And I think um, I did a spaces with John Carvalho recently and he This he he kind of summarized this pretty well, which is like you know, Bitcoin can't have weaknesses because it is the invention, right? You have to accept all parts of it in order to build on it, right? And then, and that's how he's kind of rationalized himself into being a builder, right? He's saying, okay, it's only limited by my ability to improve it, and so therefore, I am going to improve it. And then also, you know, anything that other cryptocurrencies can do, like on a long enough timeline and with the right, you know, decisions or the right creation, like Bitcoin would be able to do that, right? So so essentially, it's those three kind of prongs. It's, you know, one, Bitcoin is a computer science invention. Uh, Two, uh, that, you know, other cryptocurrencies by virtue, you know, compete with Bitcoin and then, you know, pick your poison in terms of how uninterested or, you know, forceful your disinterest is. Uh, And then... You know, three, the understanding that Bitcoin, you know, is limited, only limited by our ability to improve it. Uh, and then there's some other aspects of it that I get into the article a little later. Uh, you know, again, I would argue that Bitcoin maximalism has really become a lot more relevant recently uh, because it exists to serve a purpose. Right. Like people are using it for something uh, and they're using it as a way to kind of, you know, rebel, attack, uh, you know, differentiate what's going on in Bitcoin from the larger crypto sphere. Right. And so, you know, there needs to be some reason to support Bitcoin over all the other cryptocurrencies. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, the in- short term incentives of those projects. Right. Uh, you know, if you're naturally just incentive incentivized towards accruing more money, uh, you would simply do that thing. Right. So, so Bitcoin maximalism also exists in antithesis to what's going on elsewhere in the space, um, you know, and it is antagonistic. Right. And I think that's that's why it's been such a flashpoint lately. Uh, is I think people in the broader cryptocurrency industry, I, I don't think they really understand that antagonism, and I don't think they understand that it comes from like a good place, like that the reason behind it is sound. Um, so therefore, they have a really hard time understanding like what is going on, and I think that's kind of bringing us to today, where there's you know huge debates about what max- maximalism is, uh, and I think a lot of those debates like really don't go back to like kind of the first principles and really walk through. Well, why would Bitcoin maximalism be antagonistic? Is it good that Bitcoin maximalism is antagonistic? And in both those cases, I would argue that yes, I think it's it's actually fine for Bitcoin maximalism to be antagonistic. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, it can still be very beneficial. You know, even if you're someone who's outside of Bitcoin maximalism, like you could you could still derive value from
3: it. I don't know if that was too long a ramble but it's it's really good i almost I, I, I do want to add one other point and i think it's a point that you made uh quite well on um on what bitcoin did when you appeared on there which was to explain why bitcoin maximalism as opposed to crypto open mindednessism, um is actually a scalable philosophy that makes sense because I, I i think that that's the really important nuance that explains why the antagonism, in a sense, is rational and needs to exist, and it doesn't exist like in a furious, um, irrational antagonism. It's not my bags are heavy are heavy in Bitcoin, but it's like we can, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it because you. Don't, well, yeah, your I think idea.
8: ultimately, I think ultimately the other, you know, if you were to take, uh, I guess, I in a long-winded way, I basically say that you know every large cryptocurrency-ism is an attempt to describe the world, right? So they're essentially descriptions of reality. And then, you know, really what you're looking for then is like, which description of reality like best represents the world. And I have a friend who kind of says, you know, reality is just change-resistant descriptions of the world. Uh, so if you kind of get into the, the meat of it, it's like people's perceptions of reality is changing all the time. And then therefore, like whatever is uh, change resistant is reality, right? So you you kind of have no coinerism, um, you know, being kind of a funny uh, ideology to us, but you know, I, I would argue it's actually pretty easy to explain, right? They have like a defined scientific outlook. Uh, you could argue it's probably not super correct based on, you know, everything that we've seen over the last 10 years, which is Bitcoin continuing to function, going up over time, but you know, at least, you know, it's a useful kind of dummy to kind of model these things. Uh, and then you have cryptocurrency agnosticism, which I guess is the only way that I've been able to to frame it which i guess is the loose belief that just you know all cryptocurrencies are good because they're non-government currencies uh and therefore you know we should sort of trust in the market uh and foster a market that sort of you know where all these kind of competing goods that are all doing great things um are competing uh you know again lots of things to break down there that's that are probably super uh you know <laughs> lots of debate uh and then there's bitcoin maximalism right and i think one of the interesting things about crypto agnosticism and Bitcoin maximalism is really only Bitcoin maximalism has like a good, succinct definition of like why the entirety of the thing would be needed at all, right? So in crypto agnosticism, you know, often the framing that you get is that you know Bitcoin is a new asset, or sorry, cryptocurrencies are a new asset class, uh, and that you know this is the future of investing, right? You kind of see like these different terminologies, and you know that just really, if you accept that framing, that just wraps cryptocurrency into the existing like financial fintech framework, right? You're just saying like, okay, as a normal person you save in dollars and you invest and you will also invest uh, in these crypto assets, right So there, there's nothing really inherently new about it. You're actually just folding cryptocurrencies in, into the existing worldview, right where you are a person in the world who uh, works a job for government money and then you invest in these other assets. Uh, you know that, I would argue that that's that's essentially the, the proposition, whereas with Bitcoin, you know, if you view take the view that Bitcoin is a savings tool, that Bitcoin you know offers you know uh, advantages that will long term help it compete with all government money is, and that therefore it's virtuous and it's good to build on Bitcoin. Right, the incentives are better for for everyone in the world uh, than Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin is an exit to the system. If you if you believe all those things, well then then really of the three isms like crypto agnosticism, no coinerism, and Bitcoin maximalism, uh, Bitcoin maximalism is the only one that's really saying anything new or valuable, right? There isn't really anything inherently revolutionary about the other view. And again, I think, you know, some people kind of critique when I say that, because I think they're taking, you know, it's kind of easy to slam the crypto space as a whole. And, you know, there are some, you know, people who, you know, maybe have some ideas outside of that. Um, But again, I I sort of use that, like, kind of like, there's three worldviews, ultimately, Uh, you as a person, like, have to agree with one, this is kind of what I say to the other, journalists, right? Because that is like kind of the culture and the group that I come from is that essentially, you know, you you have to pick one uh, because they like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies exist. Uh, Therefore, like you have to have there is no neutrality, right? Like you either have to like definitionally accept that they exist and then, you know, pick one of those uh, kind of worldviews. I would argue that like most of the journalists like investor types they immediately kind of pick the third bucket they immediately pick crypt- crypto agnosticism uh and i don't think that they are often asked like why they have picked that um and i think they've picked it just because it's the most it's like the least um extreme and like in their view and it's the most like socially acceptable right so this is why you kind of see like as crypto journalism has scaled like a lot of it has you know Kind of come within this wrapper of like Bitcoin is a new asset class. Bitcoin is like you know uh, a new investing paradigm um, because it it kind of fits the most easily in, into the worldview. But again, they haven't actually gone into the research or anything, um, so they just sort of accept that as the status quo. Um, so that's sort of how I evaluate them, right? And I use the example of the Little Hodler because I think the Little Hodler is like really interesting um, because in the comics you can sort of see that even when like even a five year old can understand. Bitcoin's differential from the status quo like very easily, right? So that that tells you the ideology is very scalable. right? The ideology has like clear beliefs uh, that Bitcoin is unique, that it's, you know, uh, competing against government money effectively and that ultimately, you know, it's the best choice for human freedom uh, for money. And then all of that is distilled into like this little colorful character who's like going against the status quo. Uh, But I, I would struggle to like, how would you make something like that for crypto agnosticism like, or like the Ethereum sort of worldview where there's like many assets. Um, it just doesn't seem to compute. Right. So I think that it's sort of like hard to imagine what that character would do. Like what would they be for and what would they be against? And like, what is their, what is the world? Right. Like, and this is where I kind of go into like worldview, like a worldview is essentially like a weighting of the character, like in uh, a, a universe, right? So you when you enter a film or a game, like oftentimes like you talk about the world, right, and how well constructed is that world? So you know this is something we experience all the time in like art and entertainment. Uh, you know, in Star Wars, you follow Luke Skywalker and you follow him through the world, uh, and the world is is you know various levels of defined. Um, and I would sort of argue that all the isms in cryptocurrency essentially try to do the same thing, uh, but I think Bitcoin is the most effective, uh, partly because it's. Uh, you know, its moral shadings of the world are, are, are clearest. And and again, like, you can just see that they scale up, you know, and they scale down. You can explain them to a five-year-old, and then if you really want, like, advanced, you know, scientific explanation for Bitcoin maximalism, you know, that exists too. Uh, but it's, it seems to scale up and scale down, whereas with cryptocurrency, it's like cryptocurrency agnosticism, and this has really been, like, kind of what you've been hearing. Um, has like Peter stepped
3: years. into the Matrix for the rest of you guys?
8: Oh, sorry.
0: No, I can hear him just fine.
8: It's me, darn. Well, anyway, I was, I was saying with Udi and, and and Nick and kind of like the anti-maximalist crowd is like really they're just kind of appealing to like their own intellectualism. Uh, and in some ways, I think the real crime for Bitcoin maximalism is is that we've somehow offended their intellectualism uh, because we've either like disrespected it or said that certain things that they are saying are not true that they are, think are valid. So, again, it's like an argument that... Um, you know, you need to be an intellectual participant in the market, which again, I think is kind of absurd um, because like that obviously doesn't scale down, right? You can't, you, you would be limiting like the, what you are constructing for the participants.
3: Like if you take that view, um, Yeah, right? I, yeah. I, what I think is so powerful about this piece, Peter is, and I, I think this is the new insight that you're actually contributing. You know, I call it the scalability of the philosophy, right? In, that it is accessible to anyone you I, I spend all my time thinking about bitcoin but if i say if i said you have to spend all your time thinking about bitcoin to to be a bitcoiner and to be a bitcoin maximalist it would make be making it impossible to scale and and as you said all and i, I think saying, what's
8: interesting is that is what cri- crypto agnosticism asks, and i don't think it realizes that it asks that but i think it, it has to ask that because if you imagine course. a world where you're managing like you know again just like imagine the world that the ethereum's envision where you know you're constantly watching what the devs are doing you're constantly on twitter for the next project, like wanting to ape in as soon as the thing happens again again i'm not saying that like investment is bad or that like some of these like types of investments that are creating uh, are necessarily like entirely useless or like maybe in a future like wouldn't you wouldn't want to re- recreate them on bitcoin i'm just saying like their their world is like uninhabitable <laughs> it's like it's a like, very unfriendly and it's unfriendly to people with even like extraordinary like uh, access to like market information, you know, like if you looked at what was happening in like DeFi summer, like in 2018, 2019, I mean, there are people who were getting rugged on projects because like, <laughs> you know, a guy would tweet that this, you know, new thing was coming out and the next day it would be totally gone. And it's like, OK, like that you're going to ask normal people like that. That's they're going to relate to that worldview. I don't think I don't think they will. Like, I don't I don't really understand. How well, well, and
3: I, I, <laughs> I think ev- once again, I think evidence shows that it doesn't right the ICO craze came and went. I think the DeFi craze has come and gone. I don't know if it's too premature to say that the NFT craze has come and gone the whole time. These are, these are new things that come, they're confusing, they attract a certain type of individual who, who either has this d- desire to, to gain by dedicating a tremendous amount of their time or to just be ahead of the curve before other people catch up, but the, the cycle runs through and it, and it runs out, uh, whereas the narrative of Bitcoin is just slow and steady and consistent. And so anybody can understand it, and you don't have to, like, an Ethereum circa 2022 is a different person with a different narrative than an Ethereum circa 2021 even, let alone circa 2017. Yeah, it
8: was funny. I was actually digging through an old post <laughs> the other day because, you know, I kind of troll the, you know, for my, people who follow me on Twitter, I troll for kind of old, old old posts, but there was one from uh, Chris Dixon from A16Z, and it was when Ethereum had just come out. Uh, and he made some post about like he quoted, uh, he like tweeted a picture of something is like really interesting what's going on at Ethereum. And it was like this little post about how like code is law and that like, you know, Ethereum was this new cryptocurrency system, you know, for like human laws or something. And I was like, wow, that's like a narrative I haven't heard in years. <laughs> like I haven't like even being every day here uh, that like the the narrative. It just like reminded me like the narrative velocity. Uh, yeah, but you know, Pete. So
5: Pete tone here. The codas law thing that was like the Dow, right? That was uh, that, that, that was the big, the, the, the that was their big statement. What what the hell was his name? Oh God, I forgot the name of the guy. Uh, Stefan.
8: Uh, oh gosh, you're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah Stefan something. Stefan something, yeah, um, yeah, but like you know that just says that like, and, and again, I don't think that's you can get into different uh, variations of, like, how negatively you treat people for, like, changing their narr- narratives, right? I think I would argue in Bitcoin we've done, you know, a fair amount of that, not to be terribly critical, but, like, you know, it was, like, it, it's just a reminder that it's gone so far from where they originally started, you know, when and talking about CODIS law or, like, <laughs> cryptocurrency is a framework for law, but you don't even hear about that anymore. Or at least with Bitcoin, I think a lot of the things, like, You know, you can argue how much Austrian economics was influential to Satoshi or how much Satoshi really gave a shit about economics in general. But, like, you can certainly find people in the forums from, like, you know, 2010, like, talking about sound economics and economic policy and, like, why that related to Bitcoin, right? So, like, some of these things have ebbed and flowed in Bitcoin, but they arguably haven't, like, disappeared entirely, right? Whereas in some other areas, they've just, you know, I I don't even know if you tweeted. If you got the bankless guys to tweet that today, I don't even know.
3: (laughs) I don't think anyone would, would care about it.
2: Hmm.
3: Yeah, Tony Tone or anybody else, um, I, I I really appreciate Pete you offering this up because I, again, I think you've concretized and distilled what what it is that's at the essence and that's accessible to everyone who, who may then say, Yeah, Bitcoin makes sense to me because it is a computer science invention that replaces money and. And that's, and that's what we need, uh, a state free money. Well, or
8: they maybe, be- maybe we could talk a little bit about the antagonism piece, too, because I mean, sure. you know, I think people, I'm not a personally very antagonistic person. Like, I know a lot of people who are very antagonistic or toxic on Twitter, right? Um, but, you know, again, like, when I was defending that, and I, and I, you know, whenever I'm asked, I, I always do defend that point, because I think, essentially you know, antagonism can be valuable, like it can can serve a purpose, right? So if you look at, you know, what is the uh, intent of a lot of the antagonism or toxicity in in Bitcoin, I mean, it's often to, you know, I said this in the piece too, like, you know, it almost serves as a rule of consumer protection, where it's like, you know, many of these companies and protocols and things like they do not, they are not clear about their trade offs to users. They're not clear about what they're trying to achieve. Uh, And therefore, like that antagonism like has a real use. Right. So you can argue like, you know, whether somebody's behavior in that antagonism, you know, is always warranted. Right. And there's certainly like people who like on Twitter who go, you know, look, everybody sees things on Twitter and they're like, I fucking wouldn't tweet that (laughs) at all. And like, you know, that's a really gauche thing to do. I think that's that's fine. Right. But then you then the question is, like, is the antagonism good? And I think like the answer is yes. Right. And I think Bitcoiners like maybe also have to accept a little bit that like our antagonism is not always going to be immediately validated. So like, you know, if you take the perception that like Bitcoin, you know, again, it is this computer science invention. The other cryptocurrencies, you know, maybe they are only valuable in the short term. Right. Until we figure out how to reappropriate these things to Bitcoin. Like short term can still be decades, right? Like you could still go through large periods where these things exist elsewhere. So a good example would be what's happening with stable coins, right? Stable coins, they were started on Bitcoin. They moved elsewhere. You know, we're making an attempt with tarot and other things uh, like, you know, synonym and other attempts to kind of move stable coins back on a Bitcoin. Why? Because the trade-offs in the trust model is better. That's what we would have to believe to be Bitcoin maximalists. Uh you know, and you can say that is an antagonistic action, right? We are trying to take something elsewhere and appropriate it's Bitcoin, right? Through through our uh, unwillingness to accept that thing in its other state. Um, but that unwillingness is good, right? It's trying to move something to a better state, right? And therefore, like the antagonism isn't entirely a product of its own anger. Like it's not I guess not somebody just lashing out in anger at something. You're lashing out in a certain way against the status quo because you have a certain belief, and ultimately that belief is that, you know, it would be better if we could do these things on Bitcoin because it would bring all these advantages. Um, you know, so when I see antagonism against products and services like in the space, and again, this is like a really big thing I think for a lot of the new anti ma crowd or just the crypto agnosticism crowd is, right, they see antagonism against products and services and they say, oh, whoa, you know, you're not on the team, like you're not, you're not, why are you, you know, why are you calling us out, right? Um, And the answer is, I think Bitcoin maximalism, you know, will always have a stance on people who try to profit in the short term on Bitcoin's limitations. And then as a community, you'll always want to attack those things and then replace them uh, on Bitcoin. And then ultimately, you know, maybe that that's better. And also maybe that it's impossible. And that's the other thing I think that Bitcoin maximalists like also have to accept, right, is that like, you know, um, and I've been using this phrase a little bit where it's like, you know, Bitcoin maximalism, crypto minimalism, right, to to maximize Bitcoin is to minimize crypto. um, And they will always have that sliding scale. Uh, But Bitcoin maximalism could be effective and crypto minimalism could be still, you know, the minimum crypto could be like, you know three or four or ten,
5: you know, like out of a hundred. <laughs> you know. I, I have those hats. We have, we have those hats made, shitcoin minimalist. I tried making <laughs> that like a thing. Uh, this is Tone, by the way. Something went wrong with no, my I, man, I'm Twitter handle. i to hear you again, man. Yeah, we, we had. you. I think you were there at the Unconfiscatable conference. I was wearing the shitcoin minimalist hat. Uh, someone made those for me. Uh, just uh, because eventually, if you believe in shitcoin minimalism, eventually you just end up with Bitcoin anyway. Yeah, definitely. Oh, uh,
1: really how do those hats uh, uh, make you feel emotionally? Tell us your
5: thoughts, sir. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's all great wearing what everyone was laughing.
8: Uh, yeah, man, I think it's yeah, but I think it's, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is both like it can be that can be the right outlook and maximalism can be defined by that outlook. But our success might not be that like we replace everything. Right. So I, I think also there there's a bit of a push pull there. Right. If you understand that we have a natural antagonism and a natural aspiration, we're still not guaranteed like ultimate success like in every case. Um so again, I think it's like worth taking with a grain of salt. It's like there may be things that just, you know, uh, and again, like stable coins is one, like obviously like, you know, opt- super optimistic. And I think there, there should be continued attempts to kind of bring those back to Bitcoin, like the U.S. dollars over lightning, uh, stuff like that's going on, I think is really exciting. Uh, but, you know, we can't like no one can guarantee to you that, that stuff's going to be successful, right? Like that effort, ultimately, you know, maybe that's one of, you know, 10 things that fails that gets us the right thing. Um, you know, so I do think like for some of the, the younger Bitcoin maximalists, it's like, you know, I, I do think you, you're like, you know, it it does help to have a bit of patience, right? Like short term in Bitcoin, uh, years could be, you know, uh, you know, decades, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing guaranteeing that these other things, you know, are going to go to zero immediately overnight or that we're going to be able to replace them. Right. So it's, you have to have a bit of perspective on that.
4: All right.
0: Uh, let's hit some announcements real quick, and then we'll keep rolling with the conversation. This has been really cool. We've got uh, Rizzo here and Tomer Strolight talking about Bitcoin maximalism. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin, and we do it every single day, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours. We do it live on Twitter Spaces, and it's kind of a... A great hangout where you can come in and just learn about Bitcoin. I mean, we cover a wide spectrum of topics, but ultimately it all bears on something that has to do with Bitcoin. Sometimes we talk about freedom stuff, um, but I think a lot of Bitcoiners value that. Uh, We talk about monetary history, monetary theory, um, and all of it. So... Uh, if you can't catch the live show, you can always catch it on the podcast. It's on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. Everywhere that you get your podcast, you can throw myself or Swan because I follow to be notified of when those drop. By the way, we've got a Swan Signal Live this week on Wednesday, which is going to have Lynn Alden and Pablo from Swan. They're going to be talking about lightning. Encourage you guys to attend. It's going to be Wednesday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. First hour is going to be live on YouTube. The second hour is going to be live uh, QA Q&A on Spaces. So don't miss that. It's going to be fantastic. Also, Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up in November, November 10th and 11th. Man, I'm so excited for this thing. I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys. I hope you come. I want to meet all of you in person. If you're you're a regular listener to the show, please come. I'd love to meet you guys in person. Uh, PacificBitcoin.com, promo code CAFE, all caps or a discount. You can also hit me up to join our Telegram group if you want to learn more about all the cool things that are going on. Lots of parties, events, celebrations, sports. You get to meet lots of Bitcoin Maxis, which is the topic of the show today. Maxis can be so mean. We're not mean. We just like to... I mean, let me put it like this. This is my opinion of Maxis, and I'll let you guys talk more about it because I think you have obviously a much deeper view of it than me but to me it's just about seeking the truth and helping, helping people understand the truth and so like some people are like well you guys so mean and my view it's like well no we just care about you that's really what it is because we care please continue gentlemen
1: <laughs> hey, 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 Alex. oh, hold on. <laughs> uh, definitely
8: excited to go to Pacific Bitcoin as well so I'll uh, see you all there
0: oh that's right by the way Rizzo's gonna be a speaker That's right. I just saw that today. Awesome. Very excited about that.
3: Yeah, I think this is uh, the point you were just making, Alex, is the point that I was making earlier in the conversation uh, where, you know, there, there are there are honest people who say the emperor has no clothes or there's an iceberg up ahead. And it's probably not wise to run into it at full speed. And it's and it's advice. And some people may then label those people as you're being closed minded. You're not one of us. We're all in this together, you know, and they're trying to reframe it. And I think what Peter, what Pete's theory does so well is it explains why it's sensible to not say, well, we're all in this together, or I I should be more open minded. Like, I shouldn't be very open minded about hitting an iceberg at full speed on a ship carrying thousands of people. I right? like, should be
0: very close. I mean, yeah, up. what could go wrong? What yeah. could go wrong? It sounds great. And I think
3: that that's, that's really where this antagonism comes from, because it says in in many respects, like, this is a problem. This is vulnerable. This is exploitable. This, is, this seems to be a scam in the making. This isn't going to work. This misses the point of what the invention is. This overcomplicates the world. Unnecessarily to the point of breaking it down. And that's what that's what the Bitcoin maximalists are trying to communicate to the rest of the world, and what some of the rest of the world that doesn't then hear the message in the way we intended hears as. They're closed minded. they've got heavy bags to carry. they're they're lunatics. Right? Well, and I, I think this is like the a little
6: challenge. bit of
8: like a street smarts versus like intellectualism like kind of debate, right? Like I think like one of the things that I noticed along with a lot of Bitcoin Maximals, especially this last cycle, it's like they're the ones doing the hand to hand of like talking to people through their experience and then trying to make each individual, you know trying to, to optimize each individual's outcome. Right. Where I think like the more crypto agnostic view, I think, is like more OK with, you know, just being vague, like on this user journey. Like, right. Think about the user journey that like the crypto agnosticism people kind of envision. Right. You go to an exchange, you purchase your 18 things like some of them go up, some of them go down. Uh, you're you know, building this portfolio. You know, it's like, the, you know, you're trading like all these things like in order to kind of produce free fees and free re- fee revenue. Like, so there's sort of like, you know, there's all these bells and whistles to that to that view, but ultimately, you know, like which one is more friendly to the user, right? And I think the Bitcoin maximalist view would be like, you know, there's a bit of a recognition of an understanding of, you know, people talk about the casino, right, The and the casino lights, right? Like when you go in, you're blinded by all the flashy stuff, flashy stuff. Like there's a reason like Vegas has... You know, all the shows and the razzle-dazzle and the lights and the, and the Bitcoin maximalist, you know, view really, I think, actually does do a good job at, at least getting people out of there somewhat sober, right? If they're if they're drunk and gambling, right? Um, so, again, I think
0: it's a, yeah. <laughs> So, so B- Bitcoin maxis are the designated driver. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Hey guys, can I? Get, I want to suggest something super cool. So, like as we we're talking about Bitcoin maximalist, I threw a tweet. I, I just had to tweet this out. Um, I threw a tweet up in the nest. There was an article from early 2019 titled "Top 10 Bitcoin Maximalists," and uh, it's up in the nest now. Uh, we can open that article. We can take a look at who were considered the top 10 Bitcoin maximalists in 2019. We can just go through that top 10 list. See where they are now. See who was missing from that list in 2019. How did they get it wrong? And who would be on this top 10 list today? Uh,
8: cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess if
5: you want to rank, <laughs> you want to rank. No, people. no, it's not a ranking. No, it's not a ranking. It's not a. No, no, it's it's not a ranking from one to ten. Just top ten. Like, like and it's crazy yeah, to and rank I people think, from one I to think, ten. I, is, I think uh, what tone is, is getting at. At
1: the top of this top ten.
0: I think what Tone is getting at is, is that if you look at this list and you think about, you know, why do these people get it, it's not about the ranking thing, right? Like some people in Bitcoin are like, eh, it's not about celebrity shit. It, I agree with that. I, I think what's the yeah, point I really, he's making I really, is
8: really I will say I can't stand like the oh you've done so much for Bitcoin argument. I think that's like a what's long yeah. the worst, you
0: know. I, I think what he's saying instead is like why would people think that about these folks, and what maybe has changed since then? That's an interesting thought experiment. Which, uh, I mean, I Trace Meyer, uh, for example. Sorry, go ahead. Rizzo?
3: Where's the list? I actually. Oh, okay, let's, let's see. Well, how do I, I think the yeah? The interesting thing I just took a quick look at it. it is like eight out of the ten are still very active. Can you just read the list?
5: Yeah, no, yeah. it's um it's up in the nest. If you just like the, the tweet, if you just like in, no, in the spaces, there's a link to the article.
0: Not yeah, I'll will read it for you. For those of you who can't see this, okay. Okay, so Rizzo, if you if you pull down a little bit like on the on the app and you can look, there's a thing called the nest at the top. It's the most recent nested link. So I'll read the list. Number one, siphodine amus. Number two, tone vase geez, Tone. You're such, a, <laughs> you're such a humble self promoter. Uh, Number three, Trace Meyer. Trace Meyer. Number four, Max Kaiser. Number five, Jimmy Song. Number six, Dennis Parker. I've never even heard of this dude, Dennis Parker. Uh, Murad Mamudov. Never heard of him. Mac- Michael Goldstein or Mikhail Goldstein. Nope. Never heard That's of him. That's
3: Michael. That's Pittstein.
0: Okay, very good. Francis Puglia, obviously, you know who that guy is, and then Stefan Levera. Nesky. <laughs> nah, Nesky should have you. been on that list. Absolutely, these people completely fucked up. Obviously.
5: Well, remember, this is, this is early twenty nine. This is early twenty nineteen, right? I don't know how popular he was, but Giacomo Zucco should have been on it for sure.
0: <laughs> there should be another list. Like we should like maybe get some get some names to throw in a hat. Whatever, I know you hate this, Rizzo. Uh, <laughs>
8: <laughs> I just hate the points thing, and that was like one of the worst things. Like when the whole anti thing, like was sort of starting, where it's like you know you're there, everybody gets like graded on like how Bitcoin they are. I mean, honestly, I don't even know how to make sense of that whole system or like <laughs> Like,
5: but they they kind of got it right. I mean, the only one that's really not anymore is Trace Mayer, and he's gone. Like everyone else remained Bitcoiners.
8: Like if I think you know. At the end of the day, the dude wrote a book. You know, he wrote like three hundred pages worth of stuff about Bitcoin, and you know, got hundreds of people to, to do it right. So, I mean, I think like this is one of those things where I do think like the movement, like you know, we 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 like ideological purity like only goes so far. Like right, at, at a certain point, you actually have to like also venerate people who do work right. And again, not trying to say like some of these people didn't like or, or don't, but you know, um, I think it would be nice, right? Like that would be that would be something I think that. We should want to do because I do think that, like you know, Bitcoin maximalism. I think to some extent, you know, it does prize people doing the least wrong things rather than like the most right things. And I think it's like an interesting.
7: Wait, like, hold on.
6: You guys think that
7: must stopped Murad is a Bitcoin maximalist? He turned shit coiner. Uh, no, 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 no. If he turned the to shit the coin,
0: list, then it'd be one
5: thing. But he never turned to a shit coins. He's always been a shit corner. He's just he's a trader. Right, but no, but there's a difference between trading shitcoins and actually believing in their success. There's a, I mean, I separate those two. Uh, no, but he I... be- believes. He believes. Like he believes in blockchain technology. He's on. Well, honest.
8: he's made the argument that Bitcoin should scale by moving to other blockchains, which was which was a very unpopular argument two years ago. But maybe becoming a bit more main, more at least among the anti-Mac crowd, it's been embraced.
0: Yeah, right, so I we got know, about 20, 20-ish minutes left in the show. Why don't we do this? We're starting to bring some people up from the audience. <laughs> Let's open this thing up. If you have questions uh, and you, you want to ask questions of Rizzo or Tomer, or you just have something to add in regards to Bitcoin maximalism, now's the time. Um, if you're in the audience, you want to come up, make a request, um, and we'll bring you up. If you want to if you want to ask in the Twitter group, we've got a Twitter uh, – uh, I'm sorry – Twitter group, excuse me. We have a Telegram group uh, that we use for the show. It's t.me forward slash CafeBitcoinClub, t.me forward slash CafeBitcoinClub. You can join that, ask your question in there as well. I haven't heard anything. Wait, hang on. I haven't heard anything from Harry Sudok, who's up here on the panel. Good morning, Harry. I'd like to hear Good morning. anything you have to say, and then we'll move on and go through the various hands. And What are you thinking, yeah. Harry?
2: Yeah, I, I have a I have a, a couple of thoughts. The first is that I think that Bitcoin maximalism is incredibly useful for making Bitcoin better um, because what it does is it short circuits a tremendous amount of the degradation of like the, the shelling point that sits at the heart of Bitcoin, which is censorship resistance, which is transaction settlement finality, which is proof of work, which is 21 million hard cap, right? So maximalism serves to reinforce the shelling point that sits at the heart of Bitcoin. Um, and that is, that is fundamentally valuable. Um, the, the next is that I think that um, people getting mad at other people over behavior is stupid um, because we all have to live on our own sides of the street. And like, I, I just, I just don't care that much. I don't care who's a better maximalist. I don't care who's shit coining. You know, I, I can, I can vote with my time and my dollars um, and, and my sats over, over eventually. But for, for the moment, I try to, I try to vote with dollars instead. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's just like, that's just the, the choice that I have in front of me. You know, I choose to build a Bitcoin that benefits from business because I think that, uh, I'm sorry, I choose to build a business that benefits from Bitcoin um, because I think that that, that's useful and that will make, make my life better um, and enrich me over the long run, both, both professionally, personally, and financially. Um, and I just think we, like, we overcomplicate it. And, and one of the, the gifts and the curses of Bitcoin um, is that it moves, you know, like that the world moves slowly. And like, the, the hard part is the not doing anything while we wait for it to win um, because Bitcoin is a grindstone that will, that will sit and rub against the world, um, but, it, but it will rub more slowly from time to time. And so, you know, the hard part is just the sitting still and waiting for things to happen. And a lot of people, I think, have taken the time when things are moving slowly um, to get bored and, and to it's called a, a bias for action. So, you know, people are overly biased towards doing something rather than doing nothing, which is, is the more game-theoretic optimal approach. Um, and so that's why you see people maybe launch a VC fund to invest in things that are ultimately not that useful. Um, while they wait for their Bitcoin bag to go up in value. So what do a, what a we, you know, we we uh, Bitcoin maximalists do when, when things are boring um, is we fight with each other and attack each other all the time. So, you know, that's, that's our bias towards action um, is a behavioral bias, not necessarily a, an investment bias, which we've seen from others. So I think...
3: Like, which makes us stronger, right? It's like okay. we...
2: on a relative basis for sure but i just think it makes the conversation around maximalism more tedious where where we spend time arguing about you know uh, about you know ultimately futile opinions rather than talking about sort of what is a net productive um action we could take or or how to you know you know we'd all be better off going and volunteering at soup kitchens rather than fighting at twitter that's for sure
0: pete you were gonna say something i think before i called on harry
8: Oh, yeah, it was just that also, like, you know, the original Bitcoin maximalists, uh, Mercer Popescu, like, probably would have also hated that list. I mean, you know, one of the things that he used to say was, like, you know, nobody is important to Bitcoin. And, you know, I think that that part of it, I worry, has been a loss a little bit, I think, as Bitcoin maximalism has scaled. But there, you know, used to be, I think, like a bit more you know, sort of humility in in this idea where it's, you know, part of a Bitcoin maximalism originally was just kind of realizing and celebrating kind of, you know, as Harry was saying, sort of all all the game theoretic parts and then realizing, you know, that then your human action within that, you know, the best you can do is kind of align, you know, with it. But then ultimately, you know, there is a, you have to recognize at some point that like, you know, Your ability to be important within that, and that's that's sort of where I think I I I worry a little bit, right? Where it's like we the you know the antagonism is important if you know as Harry was saying, you know we use it to build and kind of grow and further our mission, and then I think the antagonism sort of gets distracting. Like the more we're just using it to kind of like showboat or like put down other people and like not really achieve, you know. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's just garbage. That's garbage. Um, It's a weird dichotomy, right? Because I agree that the whole thing, like, you you don't want to pedestalize people because Bitcoin doesn't need anybody. And that's the amazing thing about it. And that's what makes it what it is. But at the same time, human, human nature is we look to people who we admire for cues. And this is a human behavior thing. I don't think that will ever change. So because of that, there are people that people who admire in Bitcoin who a lot of times they take their cues from. Now, like mass adoption of Bitcoin is going to come, I think, from from that kind of effect. All right, let's go through and start hitting some of these hands. If you guys have questions or things to add, uh, let's go with for Jim. Good morning, Jim.
6: Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for letting me come up. I just wanted to make a general comment sort of about my path and how I found Bitcoin maximalism. And I believe, uh, you know, I am one of them. I was very fortunate five and a half years ago to get on uh, YouTube and then get on Twitter. And I found some signal, including Tone Vays, uh, a good friend of mine now, And the list that you guys read out, all those people happened to come across my path. And I had to go through this don't trust verify thing like we all do. And like you just said, it's based on relationships. It's based on, you know, can we really trust somebody and what's been there, you know, what's been our interaction with those people. So I don't know these people, they're just on, on YouTube and stuff. But I have to cross reference, right? I'm trying to see, does this guy say the same thing as that guy? Little by little, I start to learn about Bitcoin. But as a builder, somebody who thinks like an engineer, Um, I had to get to a point where I could understand how Bitcoin worked at a technical level, even though I don't write code. I got to that point, and this epiphany happened for me, where the parts of this system work so well together, like a really well-oiled machine, or when I build something and all the pieces come together, it not only works right, but it looks good. And I saw Bitcoin as this really perfect machine that had these certain features and the features were there to allow it to be this best type of money and it didn't need any extra bells and whistles. And it was at this point where it essentially was decentralized and couldn't be changed. And all of a sudden it became, you know, light years ahead of all the other cryptocurrencies. And so what I see the difference is, you know, Bitcoin's got this purity sort of like when I build something, I have to consider every time plum and level if I want my stuff to come out right. Now I could ignore plumb and level and still get something that's kind of looks like it, but it's not, right? And so that's what all the other cryptocurrencies are. They don't have all those very important characteristics that Bitcoin has. They're missing plum and level in there somewhere, but it kind of looks like a building still. Uh, And that's what... We rail against. We rail against the fact that these people are trying to equate themselves with this perfect machine over here and they got a broken machine. And that's why we are maximalists. We can't stand the comparison. At least I can't stand the comparison, trying to equate the two. I don't care that people experiment. I don't care about shit coins. I care about the idea that too many people are. Rub pulled because they think it's similar and they're gonna get rich getting in you know at a fraction of a penny, like you know, some people got lucky in Bitcoin. So I love maximalism. I know we sometimes fight with each other, but that's like iron sharpening iron, like we're we're honing each other's knowledge and skill. So as long as it's done in love and uh, you know the, the desire to help each other versus like put each other down and you know kick each other's ass. I think that's a good thing, Uh, you know, so to the extent that it's productive and we all move forward, I think it's good. So thank you for letting me say my thing. You can put me back down, let other people come up. Thanks, guys. This is awesome every day. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Sam. Mm. Yeah, you bet. And I agree with that, you know, like there are certain people in the space who just I call them drama queens. They just like to gossip and talk shit about other people. I don't know that those people add that much.
3: But I, I'm reminded uh, of Jim's comment uh, and and Harry's as well when we talk about uh, fighting and and sharpening our, our things of of the recent film Dune the the, the new one not the not the ancient one um, and, yeah, I'm and, not a great uh, watch the David Lynch one unfortunately <laughs> yeah. Uh well it, it, this this new one's superb uh, but there's a there's a a couple of scenes that refer to this like Paul Atreides is the hero and he's he has to learn how to fight because. He lives in a war, world uh, with war. And his, one time he says, I'm not in the mood to fight. And his, his trainer, I guess, says, You're, it's, you don't get to decide when to fight. It's not, it's not you being in the mood. You must be ready to fight. And of, of course, this ends up um, being an important scene, an important foreshadowing scene later. But I, I think that this is why sparring is, uh, is often very helpful amongst Bitcoiners. It's not done with malicious intent. It's done to show a lot of it comes from curiosity, right? Like people ask, why do you think it it's resistant against this attack? It doesn't make sense to me. Why can't mm-hmm. the, the most common question you get from a new Bitcoiner is you say the government can't stop it. How, how is it that the government can't stop it? And this, yeah. this leads down a lot of stuff. So I won't go too far into it, but I think that leads to some sparring and that's often a trainings thing. And it's frustrating at times to explain these ideas and, and why. And, uh, and, and it is a form of training through sparring because the don't trust verify piece is, is exactly a form of sparring, right? Like if you're a student you and just trust yeah. and trust and trust and don't ask challenging questions and don't ask doubtful questions, you will never actually develop conviction and uncertainty. Well, I will say just from a
8: historical perspective, I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting to look back, I mean, tomorrow's sort of the anniversary of, you know, the launch of Bitcoin XT, which was really kind of the first, you know, fork that kind of started the whole fork wars. And it's like, you know, uh
7: you if it's easy to
8: imagine Bitcoin have ending having ended up looking very different than it does now. Right. And I think that's something that maybe is a lost a bit on new people. Like it was something that was fought for. And you know, I guess, you know, my view, personal view on kind of like, you know, really going go back and studying that time period and even living through it is that, you know, there are multiple points, you know, at, at which uh You know, sort of the majority view, like, uh, you know, it was something that was now that we view incorrect and could have eroded some of the value propositions of Bitcoin because it was it was in a smaller state. Right. It was it was an earlier time and it was still possible, you know, for something like that to happen. And then sort of the existential question becomes, well, like, how do you know you're in a time like that again? Um, and the, and the real answer is what you're saying is that you never know, you know, you actually don't know that. Um, and so I think part of it really comes from, yeah, we have to accept that, that like Bitcoin is capable on some level, um, you know, and it is acceptable to some of those things. Right. Um, and if it wasn't, you know, we maybe wouldn't have to take this stance, but it is, or it was right. I don't know which one of those is true. Certainly that it was, uh, maybe that it is, uh, and you know, that you have to just go forward with that knowledge, right? Cause I think, you know, if you if you kind of know what people thought about and the kind of things <laughs> that they that they proposed for Bitcoin, right? Like XT for people who don't know was a Bitcoin version of the software that had twenty megabyte blocks, right? That was the that was the default and it was proposed by a lead developer of Bitcoin, right? And uh, it is in fact the community aggression uh towards that change that that stopped that from becoming a thing right it did open up a larger kind of you know schism and and lots of other things happened. but right uh you know and i remember at the time like the community was not prepared for that right we had a much higher trust in 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 leadership and a lot more trust in uh the people um you know uh, and certainly myself right as a, as a journalist right i think that um you know i legitimately thought that these like VC investors and like people who ran these businesses like had done some form of diligence <laughs> and then you go and watch the actions and you look at what they did uh or even read what they wrote at the time and, y- and you'll see that you know they did not they actually did not have a deep understanding of bitcoin at all uh, oftentimes they're you know when they did say anything about bitcoin it was horribly wrong uh, there's a really good brian armstrong uh slide deck that's still out there somewhere where he talks about you know bitcoin consensus changes will be like browsers like just really wild stuff uh and you're like how much further are we in our knowledge of bitcoin today like hopefully more advanced uh but you know you don't know that there's no guarantees uh so yeah i don't know that's from a from the perspective of history all i can add to that is like you know wholehearted agreement with what Tomer is saying is that like you know you do have to be ready uh and we have to be ready and and one of the things we can do is just affirm you know the things that we think are accurate
4: all
0: right, we got about four minutes left in the show, so we're going to lightning round this. We've got three questions or three new speakers. Uh, each of you, please be brief uh, and concise. And then at the end, we're going to hand it over to Rizzo and uh, Tomer to make a couple closing comments before we wrap. Uh, let's go with Rabbit. Good morning, brother. Hey,
4: good morning, everyone. Uh, I just wanted to share my uh, moment of like the aha moment or, you know, when I had an epiphany of what Bitcoin is. You got one minute. Yeah. It came to me when I was like, uh, I had COVID and I was, you know, lying in bed and I was just, you know, reading books about Bitcoin and listening to podcasts. And, you know, I, I was like, you know, what is Bitcoin? How do you explain? Now I understand what Bitcoin is. How would you explain it to someone briefly? Um, if you want to rabbit hole someone. And it came down to nine words, which is Bitcoin is the most scarce thing in the world. And by definition, if you believe that statement to be true, then nothing else can be as scarce as Bitcoin. And I'll argue in that statement, you know, if you believe that to be true, you know, it. It has to be true in not just the digital world, but the physical world is, as well, because Bitcoin uses electricity and proof of work. And the way to explain this to someone is, you know, we need to understand that Bitcoin created digital scarcity by leveraging three things. Human incentives, proof of work, and decentralized right. Time's up.
0: Sorry, Rabbit. Appreciate it, man. We have have to wrap. There's a couple of the people that we need to get to here, uh, and we're going to give some some time for these guys to finish up. So I appreciate you coming up, man. Uh, Let's go with Patrick, then we're going to go with Stay on Target, and then uh, wrap with Rizzo and
1: Tomer. Hey guys, uh, thank you so much for bringing me up. Just real briefly, uh, really appreciate Rizzo's work in defense of maximalism. He made the point that what do you replace it with? If you think maximalism is bad, you know, what's, how do you protect yourself from scams? I think it's really important that we go back and keep receipts. Like if and when Ethereum finally collapses and people say, well, this proves crypto is bullshit. We need to go back and show you know, how thousands and thousands of times over, Bitcoin maximalists were saying that Ethereum is bullshit and it's going to collapse. So we need to keep those receipts. So that's why I shared the tweet I did um, up there where um, in 2019, Tone and Safe were saying that Celsius is bullshit. But then when Celsius collapsed, no one goes back and says, hey, Bitcoin maximalists were warning about this all this time. So um, uh, thanks so much for letting me talk. I'll let some other people
5: talk. (laughs) Thanks, Patrick. Thanks
0: for coming up,
5: Patrick. Oh, oh, Alex, real quick. I got the definition of Bitcoin down to six words unconfiscatable censorship resistant store of value uh we have t-shirts for that too <laughs> nice all right
0: uh stay on target aka peter Is he's another peter i don't want to confuse nice
1: people. shill tone um i i just wanted to say that i grew up you know i'm old i grew up in a in a, in a household where the socratic method was the accepted way to to discuss things. And it just goes to show you how this fiat mentality has pushed us so fucking far away from this. And now people are offended by the Socratic method. To be honest with you, when I found uh, Bitcoin spaces and I found Bitcoin maximalists in those spaces, it was like a warm fucking hug for me. So
0: I love it. I love the Socratic method, man. I think it's the very best way to teach anything. Because it it makes people freaking think you have to think. All right. End of the show, let's wrap. We'll go with Tomer and then give Pete Riza the final word before we finish up. Tomer, any I'll, closing thoughts?
3: Yeah, I'll just be really quick. I am working on a that is a, a pretend dialogue of of Socrates is talking about answering the question what is money in ancient Greece uh which I hope uh, which utilizes the socratic method so for th- those of you who like that i'll hopefully get that out in the next month um i just i, I think I'm, pete has done just such a great job of digging into the philosophy and and uh coding it right and writing it in in language and being able to share it that i thought this was a really important conversation to have and maybe we'll continue to build on it especially if pete Uh, add something to it or others in the community add to it and i'll just leave it at that because i know we're low on time and i want to hear what he has to say Thanks, summer Yeah, uh, not
8: quite sure where to, where to rope it off. I mean, you know, certainly my own journey, uh, you know, I was not a Bitcoin maximalist initially. You know, I initially came to Bitcoin through a lens of skepticism. And, you know, I guess I like to, to say every day I try to actively reduce my confidence in Bitcoin. And I find that over, over time it only increases. And that seems like a good sign. Uh, so, you know, I think that if you're a Bitcoin maximalist out there, um, you know, um, you know, there are others who support you. And I think, uh, you know, want to see Bitcoin succeed. So, um, you know, to the extent that you're, uh, you're doing that, appreciate it. And uh, to the extent that I can write and I guess help people explain where you're coming from. Um, you know, I'll continue to look for opportunities to do that. Uh, because, you know, kind of defining the different worldviews as I did earlier. Uh, you know, I do think that it's pretty clear at this point that Bitcoin is unique among cryptocurrencies and and that it really offers something differentiated from you know everything else that's out there and uh, if you want to check out my work you know feel free to go to forbes also on bitcoinmagazine.com uh, that's where i kind of write my longer history stuff also on twitter uh, you know daily doing some uh, history dives into bitcoin so if you uh, are interested in uh, the history of bitcoin uh, people doing funny things with money when it was Lots of Bitcoins, when it wasn't worth that much uh, in historical events. Uh, you know, give me a follow on Twitter, I guess. It's just at Pete underscore Rizzo. So that's it for me.
0: Right on. That was fantastic, man. I'm glad you came. Uh, enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, learned I'm a lot. forward
8: to uh, Pacific Bitcoin. You know, I can only imagine there's going to be great things going on there. Any Anything I should be particularly hyped about?
0: Mm, I'm still pushing for the dunk tank. Um, I want to have a dunk tank where Corey's in there, and then you know we say it's a Bitcoin only conference, but anybody can come, and we're not we're going to have Bitcoiners only on the stage, but anybody can come. If Corey's pissed you off for one reason or another, because you know recently some guy, I say some guy, I, I want to say it's Hoddle, one of the, one of the many hodls Anyway, was like Corey should be nominated for the Bitcoin Max of the Year. He has. I don't know. He's just been honest. And uh, I think he's ticked a lot of people off, which is fine. Come come to the conference, guys. If, if I get my way, Corey will be in a dunk tank. You have to pay in Bitcoin. But uh, you get your chance to dunk him if you like. All right. That's a wrap. And what a great combo! I missed you guys. <laughs> That's something good to come back to. Yeah, welcome. Back. You've been. Thank you. Appreciate that, man. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day. We talk about Bitcoin Monday through Friday, start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours. Great place to learn. Great place for your morning news. Prefer to hang out for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill, talk about what's going on. If you can't catch the live show, you can catch it as a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your podcasts. You can throw myself a follow or Swan Bitcoin to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to our sponsor, Swan Bitcoin. My crew: Ant, Shane, Sas for life. Producer Jacob. I am your host, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan Bitcoin. You want to know about more about Swan? Please shoot me a DM. I'm happy to help you myself. Thanks again to the speakers, Rizzo. If you listen to this later, thanks, brother, for stopping in. Greg this morning. Tone. It's been a great show. The regular crew up here. Throw all these guys a follow. They're all awesome. Appreciate what you guys do. Why? Because it's spending your own personal time to bring the word of the bright orange future to the rest of the world. I'm super stoked, man. I'm more bullish now after this little adventure, this little trip, hanging out with these folks and talking to them and learning that so few people understand this shit. But I will tell you, Bitcoiners are infiltrating every level of society and it's only a matter of time. And I'm so fired up about that. Get on the mission, people. If you don't know what that means, hang out in this show. You will figure it out over time. I love all you guys. Everybody go out there and have a great day today and crush it.